0: The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlawry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket presales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to The Glenn Show. This is Glenn Lowry. I'm a professor at Brown University and a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. The Manhattan Institute sponsors The Glenn Show. And I'm joined this week by Robert Wright, who is the publisher of the Non-Zero newsletter at Substack and uh, the host of the Non-Zero Podcast. Um, And is, uh, (laughs) I said I was coming home to Papa when he and I were talking before we started recording because uh, Bob is responsible for me to be in this podcasting business all those years ago when he invited me to become a contributor at his platform, bloggingheads.tv. And uh, that was the beginning. In fact, I think you came up with the Glenn Show, as the suggested uh, title for my podcast, and it served us well. Anyway, I
1: think so, and it has worked out well for you, and I'm glad you deserve it. I mean, you were, you. it's not Thank like you, it's bye. not like nobody had heard of you. You're already, a, you know, a serious,
0: well-known intellectual. You just didn't have the audio visual presence. And this is now a very important part of my professional life, and and of my sense of uh, doing the Lord's work as I try to figure out what in my Eighth decade of life uh, is worth uh, spending my time on. So this is one of the things I think, and I'm grateful to you, Bob. So, but we're not here to talk about that. Uh, We're here. Um, I'm reaching out to you because uh, I've been following your uh, coverage at your platform of the war in the Middle East, Israel and Gaza and Hamas. And um, it's not a subject that I know a whole lot about, but it's one of the most pressing, uh, maybe the most pressing issues of our time. And, uh, you, you're a guy that's been covering that story for a very long time. And, uh, you're in an ongoing series of conversations with knowledgeable people on the ground in, um, Israel and as well as here in the United States. And I just thought it'd be interesting to hear from you about, about all of that. So, um, yeah. l- let me, let me tell you that, um, some of my colleagues circulated a letter here calling for a ceasefire. I signed it. Uh, I've I've heard from a half. I I signed it. Well, you know, I could say why, but uh, it just seemed like the right thing to do, all things considered. And I've caught a ton of flack for doing that. Where are you on on that issue, uh, just now?
1: Oh, I I would support that for sure. Uh, I I even think it's it's in Israel's long run interests. It it isn't only on humanitarian grounds that I would support it. Um, But, yeah,
0: I do. Well, people say it's a gift to Hamas. They they say Hamas will have won um, if uh, a ceasefire were installed. Um, They said it gives them time to regroup. Um, You're not bothered by that?
1: uh, You know, the... uh You know, I listened to uh, a a recent conversation with you and John McWhorter about this, and John said something uh, that I so disagreed with that I wrote it down, and it speaks to exactly this point. Um, And as you know, I I like and respect John a lot, but uh, reasonable people can disagree on this subject. So here's, uh, here's what he said. He said, there is nothing we can do to make them stop. They are not the PLO, meaning Hamas. They don't want to sit at a table and negotiate. They want Israel to go away, and they're not going to stop wanting Israel to go away. And so to not try to exterminate them is to essentially settle for things, maybe being calm for five, maybe 10 years, and then they're going to do it again. If they don't go in there and uproot Hamas, then this is going to keep going. Now, I, I, I I'm I wasn't wild about the word exterminate, but in John's defense, I would emphasize he's not talking about all Palestinians. He's talking about Hamas, all the people in, in Hamas. Um the, the uh so there are a few things here. Uh the PLO was once famous for killing civilians. They weren't always sitting down at a table. They changed. Okay? This 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 has been known to happen. I mean, they weren't exactly like Hamas before that, but extremist groups have been known to become um more moderate. Uh the other there there are a couple of other points, one of which is just that uh You know, my view is that the ultimate source of an extremist group uh, being able to marshal the kind of resources it had to marshal to do this, including human resources, including you know something like seventeen hundred Hamas uh, militants were killed in Israel. You know, on October seventh, these guys, I I think they had a good, and their and their mission apparently was to go, go. Penetrate as far as you can and wreak as much havoc. Well, if they gave it much thought, they probably realized there was a pretty good chance they're not coming back alive. And, you know, uh, you got to ask what, what motive, how do you get a bunch of people willing to do that? And I think it begins with, with a lot of hatred of Israel. That, that's, uh, that's my view. Um, and, you know, you said you have watched this documentary. I watched, uh, Death in Gaza. Uh, from 2003, really depressing. And one interesting thing about it is I think it, it shows kind of, uh, you know, the two sides of the coin. I mean, the people kind of on the pro-Israel side or the pro-Israel right, I don't, I don't like the term pro-Israel because I, I think many of the so-called pro-Israel people are advocating things that aren't in Israel's interest. But uh, anyway, uh, people on that side will say, you don't understand, Hamas is a death cult. Okay. Right. This isn't about root causes. It's a death cult and we have to get rid of it. And then people on my side say, well, you have to think about the root causes. Like these, these kids uh, that are now, you know, 75% of the people in Gaza are now homeless. They've been driven out with bombs falling around them. And these boys who are eight, nine, 10, 11 years old even even if they come to conclude that Hamas shouldn't have done this, do you think they're not going to hate Israel? I mean, this is just this is just a, a feast for terrorist recruiters down the road. And well,
0: yeah, I mean, isn't the answer going to be they would have hated Israel anyway? That the hatred of Israel comes from uh, not from reaction to what Israel does, but from an ideology of Jew hatred, anti-Semitism, and a death cult. Uh, you know. Uh, kind of uh, way of looking at life. And uh, you're asking Israel to leave itself uh, open to, as John points out in the repetition of October 7th, uh, on, on a theory of uh, the theory is if we play nice, they won't hate us. That's suicidal.
1: Um, I
0: think there
1: is a very stubborn problem uh, of the kind you describe. Absolutely and uh you know, and it goes way back. It goes back to nineteen forty eight I mean most of the people in Gaza descended from people who were displaced uh during the violence uh between Jews and arabs in nineteen forty eight uh so they 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 think of you know they think of themselves as as victims from the get go um and and it starts then uh but i I think it's been reinforced uh frequently. Over the last twenty years, by incursions like this, but of a smaller magnitude, and I, I'm not saying in any of these cases Israel had easy options. I'm just saying, you know, what they're doing right now is kind of what they've been doing, but on a larger and more intrusive scale. They 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 basically, when Israelis die at from under, you know, from missiles coming from Gaza, Israel goes in and kills 10, 20 times as many. Palestinians has died in the original attacks of retaliating, for. so this is it, it, it's it's bigger, it's worse, it's more violent, uh, but it's kind of the thing they've been doing, and that hasn't worked. And and to get back to that documentary, I want to acknowledge that it does reflect uh, the side of the argument that Hamas is a death cult, right? You you saw it, and you saw that Hamas has an infrastructure for steering young males toward militancy and even martyrdom. There's a horrifying scene in there where these uh, militants who are probably, I don't know, 18, 19, 20, they have masks on because they don't want to be identified on camera, so you can't really see them. But they're cultivating this 11-year-old. Right now, he's going to be help going out and, and watching for Israeli soldiers and reporting back to them because Israeli soldiers won't kill an 11-year-old as a rule, at least, uh, although some of them die in the course of this documentary under, via Israeli yeah. bullets. Um, so, th- so there absolutely is that side. And, uh, you know, the, so it's a very complicated problem. You've got this Hamas machinery for recruiting, uh, and, and it begins at a very young at a really disturbingly young age. Um, but at the same time, the other thing you see in that documentary is, of course they're gonna hate Israelis, right? All these kids they, they all they all you know, a lot of them are rated, related to somebody who's died, who's been killed by an Israeli soldier, often a young person, or they know somebody. uh it's just uh, and, and and the only Jews they've ever seen. Are Jews with guns who are oppressing them. Now, of course, things have changed in Gaza, and I want to—I actually want to talk about that. This was 2003 when Israel was still occupying it, which it is still doing in the West Bank. But um, so I acknowledge the complexity of the problem, but I—I I think it's extremely naive to think that you can do what Israel is doing right now and not wind up with a generation of people uh, who are just ready to be recruited by whatever the next Hamas is, if, if, if they wipe out Hamas per se. Um, and nobody even has an idea of like, how do you get somebody other than Hamas to be running the place afterwards, right? It's like, I haven't heard a serious idea.
0: Well, uh, we can get to that too. Um, I, I want to devil's advocate you a little bit here. Uh, what would you have Israel do? Uh, maybe the horse is already out of the barn on the hatred problem, given that we can't go back and undo all that's been done to generate this enmity. Israel's now actually confronting this, uh, threat to security, uh, on its border. What would you have them do? Uh, um, that's,
1: you know, you know, I would have them first acknowledge that it's a very long-term problem. I mean, stop doing a lot of the stuff that's being done, okay? Uh, in the West Bank right now, settlers are engaged in what can only be called ethnic cleansing, okay? It's clear. They are going to Palestinian villages and, uh, and either saying, if you're not gone in 24 hours, we kill you, or burning down their, their olive uh, groves or shooting them and killing people. I mean, if you compare the numbers of displaced uh, Palestinians in the West Bank, pre-October 7th, post-October 7th, or, or the number killed by settlers pre-oc- pre-October 7th post, it's clear <clears throat> that right now is a major ramping up and villages have been vacated. It's working, okay? And Biden is not, you know, he kind of talked about it, but I mean, first just stop, doing things that are obviously unwarranted and illegitimate and in violation of international law um and uh you know don't make the problem worse and i would say what they're doing in gaza right now is in the long run making the problem worse so first stop and don't make the problem worse i'd say that the long run solution is uh i guess something we'll get to and it has to do with two state one state and it is extremely challenging but Right now, I don't see where Israel is heading that culminates in anything other than either the flat-out undeniable ethnic cleansing of the West Bank and Gaza, or um, what is undeniably apartheid, which many people think it already is, and you can certainly make that case, right? And if Israel wants to live like that forever, I guess they say we can, we can, we can maintain a hold of uh, of, a, of an apartheid-like situation and and you know or we can just uh intimidate all the Palestinians into going into into Jordan and Egypt or something maybe but you know these are these are horrible, horrible things to uh I would think to contemplate for Israel.
0: And what I was just gonna ask you, Bob, what you talk to people in Israel, uh from various walks of life, journalists and academics and uh activists and whatnot what what are you hearing about the internal dialogue uh amongst israelis of uh, v- uh, various degrees of progressive uh uh political orientation about what's happening now
1: well i think uh you know the country kind of collectively is uh has moved to the to the right you could say i mean uh they they you know, there's a there's a kind of a hardening of well. First of all, I think their hearts toward the people in Gaza. I think the suffering in Gaza is not, uh, is not preying on the consciences of Israelis the might the way it might have if if the if the provocation for it hadn't been uh, so atrocious and dramatic. Um, but also, I think more of them are are saying, yeah, you know, this is just the way it's it's going to be. Uh, we're going to have to just play hardball from here on out. Uh, So I think, uh, you know, the Israeli politics have moved in a really unfortunate direction. Now, there may still be a certain amount of animosity toward the settlers on the left, which would be good because if you could at least uh, calm things down on the West Bank, that would be good. Um, But, uh, you know, at the same time, we're still in the immediate aftermath of October 7th. So it's not, you know, I, I mean, Israeli attitudes can change. Um, but yeah, right now it's uh, the left. I mean, honestly, the left, even the left was not paying a ton of attention to the Palestinian situation for the last, uh, almost since the uh, second intifada uh, or or maybe the, the last kind of gasp of an attempt at the two-state solution, which, which well, whenever you want to mark that you know, late in the Bush administration, during the during the Obama administration, whatever. Um, so, you know, look, things are grim all around, but A, let's not make things worse. And I don't think we have time to get into the possibility of this becoming a wider war with the U.S. Uh, engaged with Iran, but that would be another another benefit of a ceasefire is to make that less likely. Um, uh, but, you know, if I could go back into the history uh do you, or do you have another another question or another thought?
0: No, go back. Well, I, I'm going to ask whether or not you think it's even a feasible objective to eliminate Hamas. I gathered from your earlier comment that you may not think so. That you know, people go underground, or Hamas 2.0 emerges after uh, the decapitation and er- er- eradication of the infrastructure of Hamas 1.0. Um. um
1: yeah i think either Hamas or rebranded uh Hamas almost certainly emerges uh i mean and other Israeli goals are gravely complicated by this they you know there was they would like to normalize relations with various arab countries uh and have with some but but relations with those countries are going to be strained now um but you know there is so so uh, to get back to John saying that, that, you know, Hamas isn't a PLO, they don't want to sit at a table and negotiate. There's a part of the history of Hamas that it doesn't get any coverage uh, in the mainstream media. And I'm going to write about this probably in this Friday's non-zero newsletter. But, um, you know, if you ask, well, how did they get to be running Gaza in the first place? And, and, uh, the standard answers say, well, they they forcibly they seized control by force of arms in a civil war by dethroning Bata the other party, and then sometimes some people will, and that happened in 2000, I think uh, seven, and uh, uh, and then some people will say uh, they won uh, an election in 2006. And, and you gotta wonder, well, wait, if they won an election, why did they have to fight a civil war to acquire power, right? And nobody ever asked that question, but there's an answer. Okay, so uh, after Israel withdrew from Gaza, um, there there was an election uh, for to see who would represent the Palestinians broadly in Gaza and the West Bank. Hamas wanted to run in the election. The US said, fine. The US was really big on these elections. Israel said, okay. Uh, then they actually won. Now, I, I don't think they won the popular vote. I think they got 42, 43%, but they, this gave them control of what was the parliament, although maybe under another name. And, and the system of government had just been changed such that that was where the power is. So the prime minister now had more power than the president. So basically, they were now the legitimate government of the Palestinian people. In the in both the, Gaza and the West Bank, as I understand it, that's right. I I, mm-hmm. I I I I'm I'm just doing the research, but as I understand it, that's right. But they won the election. Uh, they were the uh, by the U.S.'s own lights, at least the way I was talking before the election, they were the legitimate representatives. But,
0: but they course, had a charter that denied the legitimacy of Israel, as I understand it, and and that was the reason that uh, they weren't uh, recognized. Uh
1: that's. Kind of true. Uh, let me let me let me go into it a little further. Um, the uh, so there's a piece about this. I mean, the short story is the U.S. said, "Wait, we said you could run. We didn't say you could win." Okay, <laughs> we're not we're not gonna we're not gonna uh, we're not gonna support. we're cutting off funds, uh, and it, it, we even cut off funds that were tax revenues of the Palestinian people themselves that were channeled through Israel. Okay, you don't even get your own tax revenues.
0: So. Um, unless you unless you're willing to revoke your uh, provision of your charter and recognize the legitimacy of the state of israel
1: um that that is correct that's correct that was among the demands so let me read to you a piece from john judas well well let me let me finish the story apparently what okay. we did was uh we not only did that we encouraged fatah to overthrow hamas by force so and we channeled weapons to them uh, we got Egypt to send them weapons, and we, we did all this stuff. I mean, we, we sometimes people say Hamas gained power through a coup. Hamas was the victim of an attempted coup, and they fought back, and that's how they con- gained control of Gaza. okay? Now, uh, there was, and, and the thing is, uh, you know, uh, you know, John said they won't sit down and talk. Actually, right after the election, the leaders of Hamas were saying, "We'll sit down and talk." I, I actually, it's funny, you mentioned blogging heads. I went back and found a blogging heads I did where I actually went to the trouble in 2006 of of cutting in the videos of Hamas leaders. And I don't mean they were saying, you know, yes, uh, you know, we're now, uh, you know, Nelson Mandela. Uh, but I, uh, they were saying, you know, people saying, well, would you talk to Israel? And they, they were like, well, if Israel do A, B, and C, if Israel this, uh, the point is, they were not saying no; the war must continue. They were talking about long-term truce. And let me read you uh, from this John Judas piece from 2013 in the New Republic. Uh, by the way, he's got a, new, a good new book out on the uh, future Democratic Party. Uh, you might you might be interested in talking to him. I don't know, but uh, so uh, so he's talking about there was a uh, the. Deputy Secretary General of the UN, who was also uh, representative to the Middle East Quartet. The Quartet was U.S., Russia, uh, UN, and European Union. And here's what John says about this period before the uh, Civil War started, but after the election. According to a mission report from DeSoto, who was the UN representative to the Middle East Quartet, Abbas and the Hamas officials wanted to create a unity government of the two parties. Okay, so he Abbas, who was still running the Palestinian Authority, wanted a wanted a joint government of Hamas and Fatah. His party, Abbas, was convinced that Hamas, which had not campaigned against the two state solution, would allow him to pursue negotiations with Israel. And De Soto and the UN wanted the uh, wanted the quartet to open quote a channel of dialogue unquote with Hamas, like Abbas. They believe that Hamas's decision to participate in elections indicated a willingness to lay aside their opposition to the peace process. Instead, the U.S. supported uh, a violent overthrow, okay? Now, uh, and I, I want to emphasize, some of this evidence is maybe a little sketchy. I think John rightly says that the preponderance of the evidence supports the, this, this view that, that that's uh, what the U.S. did. There's an earlier Vanity Fair piece that did some of the original reporting um now okay you're, here's the part where you're right uh they uh the the quartet um i guess certainly the US demanded that Hamas uh uh well said that aid would be cut off to Hamas unless he agreed to recognize Israel abide by t- previous treaties and renounce violence and terror now um you just got to understand like at that point For it to agree to recognize Israel would have been such a 180-degree pivot as to be really a politically, at best, awkward thing for it to do, okay? And uh, the fact that that wasn't the first thing it was going to agree to do doesn't mean you could not have ushered in a period of peace that eventually led to peaceful coexistence and possibly to the explicit diplomatic recognition of Israel. I mean, remember, as of uh, a few years ago, there were uh, there, you know, I mean, S- Saudi Arabia uh, still uh, doesn't have diplomatic recognition of Israel. It's possible to live in peace with a country and not, and not uh, recognize them diplomatically. Um, but in any event, this, to me, this was like saying, we're going to give you an offer you have to refuse." honestly. if you understood the politics of Hamas and so on. But my main point is look, Abbas himself thought this was doable. Okay. He thought that, you know, we can get, and he knows these guys, right? And he says they'll let us negotiate for two-state solution. Okay. And and uh and we didn't pursue that. Now, I have no idea what would have happened if we had. But my point is we have repeatedly not done things like this. And so. We'll never know, you know? But the idea that there's this, there's this essentialism, this, this, you know, this incorrigible evil in the heart of Hamas that can never change, well, it's probably truer now than it was then, but I don't think it was true then. And one reason it's truer now is because possibly because of what we did then. And so I would say let's re-examine the way we have handled this whole thing and I could talk about a lot of other aspects of the way we've handle the Middle East, and just maybe ask if whether, however arduous it seems to take a different path now, maybe in the long run we
0: should. You think that wiser heads uh in two thousand five six seven would not have been so insistent on um requiring uh obeisance to a political line that just simply wasn't a feasible option for Hamas. Uh, And that, uh, this is a counterfactual, had had wiser heads prevailed and allowed this uh, terrorist organization, I mean, that's what they're going to say, right? They're going to say, you want us to negotiate with terrorists? We don't negotiate Mm -hmm. with terrorists uh, to uh, assume uh, the political leadership of the Palestinian people uh, as a whole, that we might be in a better place now, and I mean, I can hear my um Israeli friends saying, "You want us to gamble with our survival on on such a speculative uh, line of argument um you know no we're not we're not willing to do that
1: I think they're gambling with their survival right now i mean, I think this war could get a lot bigger now, I think." There are definitely people in the Israeli government who aren't bothered by that prospect because they would like the U.S. to go to war with Iran because they they see the Iran as the head of the snake. Again, I would say Iran is exploiting a massive amount of hatred that I grant you is going to be not trivially easy to reverse, but that's the way I'd look at it. But anyway, Israel thinks that, you know, sees Iran as, as, as the root of the problem. I think to to a considerable extent, and they would like to see the US go to war with Iran, because they think that would that would take care of it once of Now, if you look at US military interventions over the past 20 years, I would say be careful what you wish for. They seem to never work out as you hope. And BB Netanyahu confidently predicted that our invasion of Iraq would, would lead to, you know, peace, love, and understanding or something. Um, but uh so I I think, you know uh i mean look uh you know there are so I, th- my view is that in the long run uh it's more threatening to the state of israel to continue down this path um, i understand uh I, I and i think one obstacle to, one reason israelis would say they don't want to go they don't want to go down this path is something i think you alluded to there is a view in Israel that's pretty common that they're going to hate us no matter what we do. Right. Now they may put it different ways. They may say they're going to hate Israel. Everybody hates Israel. Look at the votes in the UN uh, or they may say antisemitism is just this kind of universal constant. It doesn't matter what we do. Um, I I don't agree. You know, I don't, I don't agree. I think, I think, uh, uh, I, I, I don't, I don't mean to say that Israel is responsible for the existence of the hatred, although I think some Israeli policies have definitely played a role in amping it up. But I just want to, I think it's best to have these conversations without even discussing who's to blame for what and just talk about how things got bad. What were the causal forces? My view is that, you know, hatred of Israel and anti-Semitism are not universal constants. Uh and of course, few people in Israel would put it quite that absolutely, but that that uh over time, uh, if you know, fewer Palestinian kids see their their relatives killed by Israelis, uh, that will make the hatred at least, if nothing else, less high than it would have been. And uh and that's a start. Um I mean really Glenn what 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 good thing do you see happening as a result of the current path and well I guess you don't cuz you signed the 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 petition god bless you
0: Yeah um I listened to Tucker Carlson interview a retired military American military person uh Douglas McGregor I believe was the guy's name mm-hmm. talk about the tactical problem that uh Actually, rooting Hamas out of the tunnels and byways and highways of uh, Gaza would require about exposure of your forces about the difficulty of that kind of close combat and and all of that and I mean his point was there going to be a ton of civilian casualties um, so on. his point also was that you you call for a ceasefire well you 've got your uh, ground troops in uh harm's way, what are you gonna do? Leave them in place. They're sitting ducks. You, they can't just sit there. You'd have to withdraw them back. And that that's part of the reason why people don't want to ceasefire. But I, I don't I don't know what to say uh when asked about this uh conflict because I feel like I don't have enough command over um uh, over all of the facts. Uh and it's so fraught. It, 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 you know, that that's another thing I wanted to actually, actually ask you about. I mean, it, there's so the intensity of people's feelings about this thing. I mean, mm-hmm, it, it's so mm-hmm. easy to offend. It, yeah. Uh, you know, one of my old friends said, I might as well have been waving a Hamas flag to have signed that, uh, signed right. that petition. All the petition called for was, uh, you know, ceasefire because of, you know, buildings falling down on families and hospitals imploding and kids getting killed. Yeah. So
1: where is the blowback coming from? I mean, these are people, you know, or.
0: Yeah, these are friends and then also people who follow the show. And, you know, some of them make comments that are public. Some of them write me privately and say, you know, I I like you. I I think you're a good guy. Uh, Too bad you got your head up your ass on this one.
1: Yeah, well. um, You know, uh, I just think, uh, look, reasonable people can disagree. And I understand, look, Israel naturally feels itself to be in a precarious position in a way that Americans cannot really intuitively understand. I get that. Uh, It's been like that from day one, given the circumstances of its birth. And, uh, you know, of course, at the same time, it's natural that all the displaced Palestinians since Israel's birth would not have started out this whole process in a good mood. I mean, you can, that's the thing. I can understand the sentiments on both sides. Uh, and, 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 And look, there's a ton of things I would advise the Palestinians to do differently. But the thing is, my tax dollars aren't going to Hamas and my government doesn't have any leverage over Hamas directly. So, you know, I talk about the mistakes I see on the Israeli side. Um... What do you want the Biden
0: administration to do differently? Uh,
1: uh, well, first of all, they're in a political uh dilemma. I mean, because there's now enough uh among younger Democrats, including uh a lot of younger Jews, there's there's now um yes. enough criticism of the current uh of, and traditional American policy that He's, uh, you know, not to mention the, uh, you know, the Arab American vote in some key swing states like Michigan. So he's in a, he's in a tough spot. I mean, I, I, you know, I've long been saying it'd be better for the Democratic Party if he didn't run and we had somebody else. But this is another reason, is that he's now, he's now mired in this. And you can't, he can't, he really kind of can't win, at least in the, uh, among Democratic voters, because they're obviously... A lot of people on the pro-Israel side, um, and uh, and that's the environment he's used to is is uh, the, the uh, traditional pro-Israel community, and and it's still a very formidable thing. Um, but you know, you mentioned how hard it is to talk about this stuff. It's been like this forever uh, uh, since I've been doing it, and you know that's a long time. Did you you know <laughs> in, in 1987, Glenn? I had a one-hour conversation on a park bench in Jerusalem with Bibi Netanyahu, just me and him. Wow. Marty Peretz, I was at the New Republic. I was about to become acting editor. Mar- Marty was, is, of course, a pretty fervent Zionist. And he thought, yeah. well, nobody can be editor of the New Republic for even seven months, which I think was going to be my tenure without you know me sending them on the official Israel mission. So I talked to a lot of people. So I've been... Um, I've been doing this a long time, and it, it you know, speak expressing uh, intense criticism of Israel and America's policy toward Israel is like a perilous business. And there are uh, people who uh, and formidable actors in American politics who like to stigmatize it and want people to think that criticism of Israel amounts to anti-Semitism. And, and I, I personally think uh, that. Has been a bad thing for Israel. I, I think more robust speech about Israel and America's policy toward Israel uh, would have led to better policies in the past.
0: Um, what do you uh, make of the censure of uh, Rashida Tlaib? I, I think it's disgraceful. I mean, especially the, the 20 or
1: so Democrats who voted for it. Um, you know, I did a piece in Non-Zero uh, about the whole, the phrase, the river to the sea, you know, and that was a, the, kind of the heart of the indictment of her. People said it amounted to, right. I, I don't know, call to eliminate Israel or, or uh, anti-Semitism or or genocide or something. Um, various things were said about her. Uh, the, um, uh, by the
0: way, excuse me for interrupting. I heard you and Eli Lake uh, in a conversation and he went after you for, uh, I think using that phrase or he characterized it as essentially calling for the destruction of Israel and and you countered that. And I think that's what you were about to, about it, to say. It means
1: different things to different people, and including within the, you know, if you look at these pro-Palestine marches where they chanted, uh, where my, you know, my daughters have, have been, I mean, they think of them as pro-ceasefire rallies, but they go and there are Palestinian flags and uh, people chant from the river the see Palestine will be free the people in those marches mean radically different things about them. And a good number of them don't really have any, you know, they just, people started chanting it. They started chanting, you know, they don't know. They don't have any idea what it means, but, um, uh, it's, it's, uh, to, to a lot of, uh, kind of progressive Palestinian Americans and Palestinians. Uh, it, it, it is like a call for, uh, equal rights for all Palestinians between the Mediterranean and the, uh, river, the Jordan river, uh, you know, let the Palestinians in the West Bank vote, for example, give them due process of law. So now would that, if you gave all of the, if you gave them and everybody in Gaza the vote, would that lead to the end of Zionism? Uh, probably eventually as a, you know, Zionism meaning, you know, uh, uh Explicit preferences uh, for Jews in the law, like when it comes to immigration and certain kind of obscure property rights, yeah, that would probably end. Uh, and it might work out very badly. I'm not saying it wouldn't, uh, but it, but you can imagine it working out well. You can imagine staging it in a way that worked out well. Uh, I mean, it, it certainly there are all kinds of ethnic groups that are that are not the majority in a, in the democracy, but do okay. Uh, my main point is just that if people are thinking about, uh, you know, if people, when they hear the phrase, when they chant the phrase, mean equal rights for Palestinians, well, even if that would, in theory, lead to the end of Zionism, and even if that might work out badly, it might work out badly for the Jews in Israel. It could, I don't know. That's still not the same as them having in mind when they chant the phrase, uh, genocide, right? And and,
0: and Rashida Tlai, you're splitting hairs, but it seems no. To I you're don't think I am. Here. I
1: don't think I am.
0: Well, let me give you an analogy. So, a person says "White lives matter." They come to uh, a rally, uh, and uh, people are saying in uh, police brutality, uh, "Get your knee off my neck." And they have a sign that says "White lives matter." Now, white lives do matter, and a person who says "White lives matter" might well think all I'm doing is affirming the value of white life. There's nothing wrong with that, but yeah. That's disingenuous. They know full well that they're saying it will be interpreted by the people on the other side who hear it as a uh, repudiation of the claim that Black Lives Matter. Likewise, uh, Congresswoman Tlaib knows full well what it sounds like if she stands in the well of the House of Representatives or whatever and says from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. To Zionists and friends of Israel, it sounds like she wants to drive the Jews into the sea. She knows that when she chooses to say it. But that still doesn't mean she means that, right? And
1: they're saying she means it. I mean, I mean, uh, Marsha Blackburn, senator from either Kentucky or Tennessee, said she's calling for genocide. Yeah. Uh, 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 you know, also, I mean, not all the people chanting that do know that. Believe me. I've talked to my daughters, okay? uh and 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 her look her they're Jewish friends. I said to one daughter, you know uh, talked to both of them about this. they've both been uh arrested for refusing to disperse I can't tell you how proud I am of them, just not even because of this issue, just that they they have convictions that would lead them to do that and uh and but i I said to one of them like uh have you Have you talked to your Jewish friends about this? She said, all my friends are Jewish. They're like with me at these demonstrations, you know, and they're
0: chanting the same stuff. We just had at Brown University, excuse me again for interrupting, I don't know, a few dozen Jewish students who had taken over and refused to leave the administration building, calling for the university to get behind a ceasefire. Uh, And, you know, they were all Jewish students who felt compelled to... Uh, take a stand on the issue. So, yeah. yeah. Now, I, I,
1: I agree we should try to educate everyone about how what they're saying is perceived. And that's what I said in this piece I wrote. Uh, but we should also educate the people who think it's an explicit call for genocide or for, quote, the elimination of Israel or the annihilation of Israel, as it's sometimes put in a, in, you know, in, a, in a way that's definitely misleading. Um, uh, you know, try to explain to them This isn't what everyone who chants that phrase means, you know, just as you want to convey a Palestinian flag isn't a Hamas flag, you know, just the more clarity, the better, Uh, because this is it's a problem. It's a problem in America. It's leading to scary things in America, you know, including anti-Semitism and and uh, and attacks on on
0: Muslims, too. Um, How how would you react to, to this argument? um one person one vote between the jordan river and the mediterranean sea means that a political majority will be uh 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 may empowered to undo the miracle which has been the uh transformation of uh palestine into this modern Uh, technologically advanced, economically prosperous, vital, free society. Uh, And it's like one person, one vote, one time. You end up with, well, take a look around the neighborhood. Uh, Why should I expect an outcome at the end of the day any different than what I'm seeing in uh, Damascus or what I'm seeing in Baghdad or what I'm seeing in Cairo or whatever? Um, And you're asking me to commit Israeli society, Jewish society, suicide. So it's as if you're taking the position, yes, Israel has a right to exist, but not as a Jewish state. And I thought that was the whole point.
1: Well, there are people who think a two-state solution is still possible. I've I've traditionally supported that. Uh, That would leave a a Zionist state intact. Um, Now, among the misconceptions floating around is that the Palestinians were at one point offered a state. You know, when you and I say state, we think of a sovereign state. It gets to control its borders, decide who who can go out, who can come in. It gets to control its airspace. It can have as big a military as it wants, and so on. Well, Palestinians were never offered that kind of state. Le- leaving aside, uh, you know, the, the the state that supposedly Yasser Arafat uh, turned down was none. Right. Of, it was not that. Okay, and there were other things about it. And I mean, look, Arafat, I don't know what his political issues were at the time, but but a state as you and I think of it has never been offered to the Palestinians. And the other thing I'd say is if you ask people who think a two-state solution is very unlikely, including me, well, well, why is it going to be so hard? The first thing they'll say is uh, we got all these settlements in the West Bank. You now have, even in the standard uh, two-state formula where the settlements Closest to Israel stay intact, and the Palestinians get land swaps to compensate for those. But the settlements further away uh, are, are evacuated. That I believe that's now over a couple hundred thousand people evacuated. And if you've seen, it's certainly in six figures, if you've seen um, what, how hard it was to evacuate like 10,000 from Gaza There are documentaries about that on YouTube. Settlers didn't want to go. Um, Especially in the current Israeli political climate where the settlers, the the wildest of settlers now have friends in the cabinet, the craziest of settlers, um, doesn't seem likely to me. So I, I do have a question. And I, you know, I hate to keep dwelling on the past, but, you know, part of my message is quit doing what you've been doing. And I just have a question. If Israel was really ever serious about a two state solution why have they continued to under every single prime minister since 1967 increase the number of settlers why is that because as they knew by the way as 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 uh you know right after the uh the uh the 6 day war in 67 the uh legal guy in the foreign ministry you know the whoever is the head legal person you know, was asked about the legality of settlements. He rendered a he rendered a, a position. It was that they violate the uh, the Geneva Convention against the transfer of civilian populations to territory acquired by force. Israel signed the Geneva Con- Convention, so every one of those settlements is technically a war crime, and Israel has continued relentlessly to uh, create them. So. And and yet they say, well, we really would like a two-state solution. I mean, really? Why do you keep making it closer and closer to impossible if that is really your hope?
0: Well, I can't answer that. Um, I can conjecture that there's an ideology about the connection of the Jewish people to the lands of Israel, Judea, Samaria, and so forth, that came uh, vividly uh, to life in an active way after 1967, and that continues to reverberate now 60 years down the line. And it's uh, very hard for the machinations of Israeli politics to extirpate it, and maybe there's not the, the maybe there's not the will or the desire to do so. Um, so uh, uh, politically, I, but, but yeah, you
1: know. I am, I understand the internal politics that have played a role in this, but, you know, it's a democracy. And so, I mean, this is the position of the state of Israel. I'm just saying to act as if the Palestinians are the ones who don't want a two-state solution when they've never been offered an actual state and Israel has systematically made a two-state solution less likely is, it's just misleading. And and it's, it's, it's like, I'm not, again, I'm trying to divorce this whole conversation from a conversation about who's to blame for what. You can go back to 1948 and way beyond, and it's hard to pick out a single party in this conflict. Okay, I'm not. I'm not I'm trying to do that. I am saying that it seems like if we're going to talk about how we solve this problem, we should at least be clear on what has happened in the past. So let's just quit saying things that aren't true about how we got here.
0: Where are the Palestinians? in the West bank whom you say are being ethnically cleansed being cleansed to where are they going within the West
1: they're still within the West bank I mean they're 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 um you know the number I I I looked at the numbers in the 18 months before October 7th there was something like 15 per week were being displaced from their home and since then it's like 250 per week and uh they go to other other uh other parts of West Bank now they may cross line you know there's this area a, B, C, or whatever it is uh, where there are different jurisdictions and and there may be some of those that they find more secure in light of the the settlers' uh you know hostility and also look, the settlers will say they attack us, there certainly is yeah. some of that there is militancy on the west Bank, but since October 7th, uh, the violence has been pretty one way. And in fact, uh, Israel has been arresting a lot of uh, suspected military. There's over a thousand uh, uh, Palestinian males who have been put in jail. So it's, you know, the, the, the violent resistance in the West Bank is not the heart of the problem right now.
0: Do we have reason to um, be concerned that uh, intifada-like uh insurgency amongst the palestinian arabs in the west bank uh could be given uh some impetus by uh, what's going on in gaza right now
1: um who i don't know i mean you know the the, the second intifada uh per se was rendered uh very difficult by the construction of the wall between israel proper and the west bank so it's it's much You know, going into, you know, blowing up pizza parlors in, uh, you know, in in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem is way harder than it was, even if you can find the people who do the suicide bombing. And this, by the way, was certainly a traumatic experience for Israel and uh, is another case where, you know, it's like October 7th in that it it did not serve, Hamas did it and it did not serve the interests of the Palestinian people. Um, it, It made it was a real watershed I think in Israeli psychology about dealing with the Palestinians. But, um, so that kind of intifada is harder. I mean, I, I guess the the settlers are now the more likely targets of the violence, but look more and more of them have guns. The, the soldiers basically back them, you know, they're going to win an armed struggle in the West bank. The ethnic cleansing is going to happen. That's what it's going to amount to. and, and I don't mean it's definitely going to happen. I mean, an amping up of the violence in the West Bank is going to lead to more ethnic cleansing. Uh, If there is an amping up of violence, even if uh, a lot of the initiative does come from the Palestinian side, you know, it's not going to work out well. Um, Unless from the Palestinian side, the goal is to engulf Israel in a regional war. And, And they think that that can be a step toward it, right? But that's not going to work out well for anybody so uh yeah look it's grim it's grim but you know i just i just want to get back to one thing quickly jimmy carter wrote a book called palestine peace not apartheid and and, and he wasn't even saying it was apartheid this was you know 20 years ago or so he was, um, maybe less, he was, uh, he was saying it's like becoming like apartheid. And if you've been to the West Bank, you know what he means, right? I mean, they can't vote. The Jews who live 100 yards away can. They can't use the highways. Uh, they have no due process of law. The military can just imprison them. And, you know, one soldier will say they did this, and that's the end of the story. There's no, no serious adjudication. Um, you know, life on the West Bank for Palestinians is a whole lot like apartheid and jimmy carter was i don't know if you remember he had to apologize because that was the, that was the speech code being enforced you can't criticize israel this harshly and he backed off he said sorry and and i don't think that's been good for israel because in retrospect he was exactly right the conditions in the west bank have become more apartheid like since he wrote and now it seems to me the options are apartheid Ethnic cleansing, one-state solution, two-state solution, and both of those are extremely challenging for reasons we've talked about. I don't, I don't know what the other options are, but I think more honest dialogue uh, would have been good for Israel. Better because these are not, uh, uh, these are not attract. That's not attractive menu of options.
0: I'm trying to get hard to resist the conclusion that um, at the root of the problem are on the one hand an insistence that the state be a Jewish state and on the other, other hand the refusal of the uh, indigenous population to accept a Jewish state and we're at an impasse.
1: Well, I don't. I don't agree that you could not get yourself to a place where there was acceptance of a jewish state on the palestinian side i think it's become much harder um the more settlements the harder and uh october 7th in the aftermath has made it harder and i personally think the israeli reaction the magnitude of it has made it harder than it had to be although inevitably october 7th was going to make it harder what what Hamas did and uh, have you
0: seen any of the videos of uh, that are circulating around of the atrocities of October seventh? Because I have not yet.
1: I, I've heard it, from people who have, but I have not. I have seen a couple of kinds of things. The one that was just kind of all I had to see was uh, just the aftermath where the concert was, um, where you know it's one uh, of these uh, you know you know when they at concerts they may these open air concerts, there'll be a place, maybe they're selling refreshments or doing something. And so they have kind of a square of these folding tables set up and inside the square, there are a bunch of people doing something, selling refreshments or whatever, you know, and there were just, uh, and inside this thing, there were just, just nothing but bodies. And uh, that was kind of all I had to see. I mean, I also saw a little bit from a GoPro helmet. Uh, of a guy who ultimately died uh it included his death uh and they were just sh- kind of shooting randomly into houses it wasn 't clear they actually hit anybody but uh so look it was it was horrible it was uh you know atrocity on a big scale it was it was the first of the war crimes uh in this episode um I think Israel uh, can now be said to have committed war crimes in response, but it was absolutely absolutely an atrocity.
0: So you're you're mindful of the psychology of victimization and how it entrenches hatred on the on the Palestinian side in Gaza. Uh, what about the fact that um, and I'm hearing it from American Jewish friends and colleagues and correspondents and commentators, you know the worst pogrom mass killing of Jews since the Holocaust uh Israel's 9-11. Uh, well, it, it seems to me that that foments a psychology of fear and uh, an insistence upon security and, frankly, an insistence upon revenge. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's not crazy, is it? I mean, it's it's something that a person could understand. So that's, that's got to be a part of how we think about what's feasible to do going forward, you
1: No, know? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it was worse than 9-11 proportionally by a long shot. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, and more, uh, even qualitatively kind of more horrific, well, I suppose you could argue, it seems to me kind of in a certain sense, more threatening to the average citizen. The average American didn't think, oh yeah, I could have been in the Twin Towers. Right. Um, But, uh, and I will say, I have long said, Israel's, uh response to the security threats uh it perceives is no more ill advised than our response to 911 was on the other hand i think our response to 911 was very ill advised and i think israel's has been for some time um but uh yeah no what they're doing i mean in a certain sense proportionally it's it it's it's it's, it's yeah. Uh, you know, maybe no, no crazier or no worse or something than how we reacted in 9/11. But you know, as Biden pointed out, that reaction was uh, disastrously ill-advised. Um, as for the, as for the other, uh, I think you're right. You know, just as the psychology of the Palestinians was deeply influenced by the Nakba, the mass displacement when most of them were driven out of their homes or left their homes, however you want to put it in nineteen forty eight um obviously the holocaust uh you know has left a uh, big huge influence on you know probably uh well I think the psychology of older Jews more than younger Jews more than very young Jews and probably Israeli Jews more than not Israeli Jews on balance that's not surprising either you know there's a there's a fear of annihilation um but I do think it can be, like all fears, you know, it can be counterproductive. It can lead to overreaction, um, and uh, you know, oh, I'd I say same on the same thing on the Palestinian side. But, but go
0: ahead. Well, no, I, I was gonna. I'm talking to the guy uh, who writes books like "Why Buddhism Is True," uh, who's a spiritual seeker, a serious. Uh, person engaged with the existential challenge of trying to search out the meaning of life and to what what's the purpose of things and I'm wondering <laughs> I mean, I used to be a better Christian than I am now, and turn the other cheek and all that kind of stuff uh, if you have any spiritual spiritually grounded reaction to this uh, uh Otherwise, seemingly intractable problem is—is is there a possibility of transcending somehow? Is it, it,
1: uh, <laughs> um, let me say uh, first of all, just uh, on the self-promotional front, clarify that uh, by true and why Buddhism is true. I was referring to kind of the naturalistic part of Buddhism uh, ideas about what. Mindfulness meditation is for why it works, and also some I think pretty profound ideas in Buddhism, but not the so-called religious part, so it's not exclusivist it's not denying the claims of any other religions um anyway the uh
0: but it yeah, is spiritual I, do I get that?
1: no it, i think I think you can say that because I think uh you know if you look at what uh, you know the 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 path toward what a Buddhist might call enlightenment. I think is you know not that I have gotten there uh, or even gotten very far but I understand where the path is supposed to lead and I think um I think it's first of all a path that you you find references to at least in various religions um and uh and and, and it's emphasized in many spiritual traditions um and I do think it involves, it is, it is, I'd call it spiritual, partly because it's so challenging and could be so transformative for the world, but it's also very kind of nuts and bolts in a certain way. It involves elementary things like being able to put yourself in the shoes, even of the person you currently hate. Right? I mean, that's, you know, uh, the, the, it's a that's it's uh, you know, I was brought up Christian too, certainly part of the Christian tradition. Um, you know, uh, and uh, the uh, that that's a very it seems like a simple thing, it's incredibly challenging because human psychology really works against it. Um, and I'm not even talking about empathy in the sense of feeling their pain, I'm just I'm just talking about understanding their perspective. You know, there's a more heartening documentary people could watch than uh, Death in Gaza, although that's very uh, valuable. It's called, uh, I think it's called Disturbing the Peace. And it was done around uh, maybe 12, 15 years ago, but it's a group of Palestinians and Israelis who get together, who have transformations of their own one of the Palestinians had once stabbed a uh, 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 an Israeli soldier or a policeman. One of the Palestinian women was on her way to do a suicide bombing when she was inter- arrested. So the, these are people on both sides who who change the way they look at things. You know, and there's one, one line in there. Uh, I think the Israeli guy said, I realize, you know, we have a lot in common. For example, we're both willing to kill people we don't know. Um And... Uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a that's a very interesting statement.
1: Yeah, it's it's a, it's a and then all and then some of these guys after October 7th uh caught up online. So they are on YouTube I think videos of them talking, but um it it it's a look I I think the world is at a point where in a way nothing short of a transformation that you could call spiritual uh will do the job. I thought that for a while um and that doesn't mean you have to you have to believe in a god or anything i'm talking about the uh you know it, it it's it's uh i think it deserves the name spiritual because of first of all it's emphasized in the spiritual traditions but also it's uh because of how challenging and transformative it is and how radical it is it's it it's although it, although although the exercises involve kind of mundane things like actually putting yourself in the shoes of the other person just to understand the way they view the world and why they view it that way, not to feel their pain, but just start that way. Um, it involves these things that uh, don't, you know, they're not mystical. They don't involve spooky forces or anything. Uh, but they, 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 if, if, you, if you went all the way with them, which very few people have done, it would be a really radical transformation of your perspective you would you know you you look at uh the world like an anthropologist from Mars. You you would like never say, I've got a dog in that fight. And I think that would, you know, give you a clearer
0: uh a clearer view. It occurs to me that to ask for forbearance uh from uh Israel in its reaction to the events of October seventh is got to be if it's going to be a successful ask grounded in something more than just the cause and effect if you do this that will happen it's look down the game tree five moves and your your outcome is not as good as it would be if you were to forbear it seems to me that it requires a caught up higher ground somehow Mm -hmm. a, a acting not in your calculated interest but in conformity with some sense of of what's just or right. Right. And I don't know enough about the Jewish tradition, but I'm inclined to think from, based on what I know, that there are rich veins within that tradition of reflection, contemplation, uh, and worship, and prayer, and study, that might be brought to bear here. Uh, mm-hmm. And it looks like if you don't bring that dimension, that dimension to the table, your, your arguments are not going to be sufficient.
1: Yeah, I mean, some famous figure in Jewish history is it? Is it Rabbi Hillel? Was there Rabbi Hillel? I don't know my Jewish history, but said supposedly said uh, summarize the Torah. Was it? Was the idea? Can you summarize the Torah while standing on one foot? I don't know how it's set up, but it, but he it just <laughs> says something like. Uh, don't do things to other people you wouldn't want them to do to you. The rest is commentary, meaning the rest of the Torah is commentary <laughs> um and uh that, okay, that's something we all accept, but to uh to i think to implement it in the in the way that that uh <clears throat> to implement it in the richest way, I mean we all accept it, and then what we naturally do is with our enemies we say uh. Well, he they're asking for more than that. If I were in their shoes, I wouldn't ask for more than that or it wouldn't be like that. And we, we always find a way of convincing ourselves that we are complying with that law uh, when we may not be. And I think that's where some of the work comes in. But you're, I think you're right. Look, uh, although there is, you know, I was uh, writing in my book about what's sometimes called secular Buddhism. Religion uh, can be a powerful motivator. And I think there are strands in all these religions that you can pick up on. And in my book, The Evolution of God, I made the argument that, you know, whether a religion is seems at the moment to be evil or benign or benevolent uh, depends on which scriptures people are choosing to emphasize. And that, in turn, is shaped by kind of circumstances on the ground, so to speak. Like, you know, what? how are they viewing the other group? You know, if you're viewing, if you hate the other group, you'll find the scriptural justification uh, for being bad to them. Um, But whereas if you're put, if you see the situation as non-zero-sum and potentially win-win, you'll be more inclined to find a part of your scripture that justifies treating them decently. That's, it's an argument. It's, It's, you know, people may disagree, but I think religion is ultimately a malleable thing in that way. And uh that was the argument I made in the book.
0: Yeah, great book. Uh I'm gonna close this out here, Bob. Uh we're talking about Israel, Gaza, Palestine, war, death, and revenge, uh and uh, how to go forward. Um where I, Kind of outsiders but we're both uh, responsible contributors to the public discourse and we're addressing ourselves to these difficult issues and uh, we're doing the best we can so i want to thank robert wright uh who is the uh who is the publisher of his uh newsletter Nonzero 0 newsletter and uh host of the Nonzero 0 podcast and my uh podcast godfather Uh, Hmm. for giving us some time and uh, for being so brave and uh, thoughtful about addressing these issues.
1: Well, I I really appreciate the opportunity, Glenn. And I can't tell you how proud I am of my godson. (laughs) (laughs) And if my godson is in his eighth decade, as he says,
0: uh,
1: which as I understand, it doesn't mean you're over 80 if I'm doing the math.
0: No, no, it means I'm halfway through You should clarify that. You
1: should clarify that. It does not mean that. (laughs) But uh, no, so Bob, God knows was, how I old was I
0: born, am. I'm as old as Israel, I was born in the very same year. Is that right? Yeah, 1948.
1: Wow. Well, if, if if I'm your godfather, who knows how old I am, but uh, that's amazing. Um, you look you look half that, Glenn. Keep it up. Whatever you're doing, I want you to send me the Glenn diet.
0: <laughs> the Glenn diet, uh, is uh, embodied by my lovely wife. Lawan Lowry, uh, who is very assiduous about making sure that I don't drink too much alcohol, that I don't eat too much carbohydrates, and that dessert is once a week, once a week. Ooh. So she's doing a good job. That's and I'm working harsh. out three times a week. I've got a personal trainer guy that uh, runs me through my, my paces uh, three times a week. So I'm doing my best. It's working. It's working. Thanks, Bob. Thanks. So thank we'll you, see bro. you around. Yep.
1: Hope so.
0: Okay. Bye-bye.